I love nothing more than to go to my camp alone with a guitar and just let those lyrics and melodies happen. He had the fly rod in the hand and the hair was up in a red bandana and it was a red and gold plaid shirt and a pair of jeans and shoes and boots. And I saw that fly rod and looked at her and I went crazy. And at 6.15 in the morning, a guy knocked on my window while I was sleeping. He goes, well, float plane's leaving at 15. So, okay, I'll, I'll get right out. I roll up the window and the guy traveling with me, I looked at him and I said, I, I think that was John fucking Girok. He said, uh, we started selling it in Tokyo, the main IFNW logo merchandise. That'll tell you, I mean, that was being worn in discos, not duck blinds. Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today, we'll be talking with our special guest, Gene Barr. Gene Barr was born in Wellington, Alabama on May 30th, 1950. Growing up in the rural countryside, he spent his childhood exploring the hills and creeks around him and developing what has become a lifelong love of nature and wildlife. Gene began his career in 1976 as a fish taxidermist. He began fish carving in 1984 and is considered a master fish carver among his peers. Inspired by this relatively new art form, he has watched its popularity quickly growing among everyone from sportsmen to art connoisseurs. He eventually stopped his fish taxidermy practice in 2000 to focus more on catch and release fish carving. He has spent his life studying fish anatomy and color, building an extensive collection of profiles, measurements, and photographs of the hundreds of fish that have passed through his studio. This archive allows him to produce beautiful, accurate, and long-lasting reproductions. He has gained a deep understanding of the details of anatomy and color schemes in his work as a taxidermist, as well as his many years as an avid hunter and fisherman. Art has brought him to see color, form, balance, and composition with an artist's eye. The perspectives of naturalist, artist, and taxidermist blend together in each of his wildlife creations. While continuing his successful career in taxidermy, he has expanded into wildlife artistry and now creates with watercolors, oils, ceramics, fiberglass, wood, and bronze. Gene lives in Sebago, Maine in a log cabin he built with his own hands. He has a detached studio and gallery where he can focus on his day-to-day commissions. Gene lives with his partner Donna and his loyal German short hair pointer Tilly. Gene has a humble personality and is warm, genuine, and caring to anyone that encounters him. In this discussion with Gene, we will explore his relationship with his mentor and close friend, the late David Footer, as well as his life spent learning and perfecting the unique craft that he excels at. It comes with privilege and pleasure to introduce the Flyline podcast audience to my new friend, neighbor, and talented Maine artist, Gene. Welcome to the Flyline podcast. Mike, it's a pleasure to be here. We're in my studio here in Sebago, Maine, and uh, good to have you here. And you got a great story to tell, Gene. You really do. Uh, I'm going to kind of tee it up for the audience a little bit that so often in my travels, I'll be in Tom Ackerman's office, I'll be in my doctor's office. I'll be having lunch with an old friend, and someone has a Gene Bar carving or mount. Uh, Gene is not just a taxidermist. Gene is a wildlife artist. And it is just such a pleasure to be sitting in your lair. We're surrounded by carvings and outline drawings. 
uh, I know that there's a great story to, to share, Gene, about how you got into this. Um, from the get-go, I wanted to be a wildlife artist from the get-go. That's why I took art lessons. But the, what I learned in 45 years of taxidermy was a stepping stone to finally say I can actually tell people that I am a wildlife artist, and that's what I do with my fish carvings, and I also paint. Yes. I do paintings, and occasionally I'll do a, a, a serious painting of one or two a year. Yeah. Way back when I started in northeast Alabama as a boy, I was allowed to go down to the creek or a branch. There's a small creek down there. So I went down to Brogdon Branch, which my grandfather was named Brogdon. His last name was Brogdon. So I went down by myself, and I had a cane pole and a bobber, and I caught my first fish when I was five. And I ran home with it on the line and showed everybody my fish. It was a small brim of some sort. And I was raised with my grandparents. I lived in a... a a stone house that my grandfather had built after he was 65, and it had three big arches on the porch, and it had big oak trees in the yard, and it had a, a well in the yard, actually a, a well that you would drop a bucket down in and, and haul it up uh, to get a drink of water or to bring water indoors. So we, I can remember that far back when I was five years old, and I stayed with them for my early years, and uh, it was wonderful being with them. And in the evenings, after the dishes were cleaned off the table, my grandfather would get paper out and charcoal and pencils and pastels, and he would draw pictures of the presidents. Like he'd take a thumbnail president, thumbnail size picture, and he would enlarge it to a life size. And I was awed by that. And and so I asked him if I could draw to it. So he said, all right, boy. And he put a piece of paper down by there, and he'd give me a, give me a pencil and give me some charcoal. And he showed me how to sh shadow, you know, by using your finger and smearing the, the, the charcoal around on the paper. And he says, well, boy, you're doing good. Well, you just can't imagine what that meant to a five-year-old boy, six-year-old boy that was wondering where his parents was. Yeah. And, but he had, I had grandparents who were wonderful. Thank, thank yeah. goodness, you know, that, that they were in my life. And, and, they, and, and he gave me the encouragement to, yeah. to believe in myself. And that, that word, those words of encouragement and that little bit of time he spent with me, yeah. is, I am the result of that today. Yeah. That's where it all started, right there, in northeast Alabama. I was born a long ways from where I was supposed to be. And my mother was a southerner from native Alabamian, and my father was from Wisconsin. So I make the analogy that if you've got a, a beagle and a German short-haired boy, okay, so what's that dog going to do? Is he going to point birds, be interested in birds, or he's going to be interested in rabbits? And for some reason, uh, as soon as I could get my bearings and and start thinking about future, uh, I, I always wanted to be north. I knew that. And uh, by the time I was 12, 
I wanted to be going north. So as time went on, uh, I turned 18 uh, in 1968. I was going to get drafted, so I w- was proactive, and I went and joined the Navy. And I'm still here to tell about it. Yeah. And uh, was it fun being some of the things I did and places I went? But I'm here, and I'm in one piece, and I never had to kill anybody, thank God. So I made friends with a guy from Maine, and I came up here in 1970 uh, for like a three-day visit. We we left Norfolk, Virginia, <laughs> young people, yeah. you know, 20 years old. I left uh, Norfolk, Virginia, and was up here, uh, drove straight here, spent a day or so, and and then went back to uh, back to sh- on the ship Monday morning. So uh, I really liked what I saw up here. Uh, uh, we got really got something special in Maine. Do you remember where you went specifically, Gene, when you came for that day? Yes, I we stayed at my uh, friend's dad's camp on Malsum Lake down in Springville, Maine. And that was a, I had a very prolific experience there. When I went into the camp, I went to the fireplace and there was a Dave Footer mount hanging over the mantle and my jaw dropped open. Because since I was a boy, every time I saw a piece of text during me work, I was totally fascinated with it. It didn't matter how ugly or bad it was done. I was still fascinated with it. Well, this was the most beautiful taxidermy work I'd ever seen. And I turned around and asked his father, I says, who did this? He said, Mr. David A. Footer from Lewiston, Maine. And I could tell the reverence that he had for this man, David Footer. So I looked at that and I said, wow. That's what I want to do. Isn't that great? Yeah. I think we, not everyone finds their path, but you have those moments of clarity. You had that moment of clarity right then. What happened next? Well, I went back to the Navy for a couple of years, and when I got out, I went back to Alabama, planted six acres of corn, come up here on vacation in, in July, and with my wife and my daughter, and I borrowed $200 from my friend and stayed. That's great. And where did you stay? Well, I got an apartment in Sanford, Maine. Sanford, Maine. And I started working construction. Yeah. Uh, Tell, me that. About it. Tell me about it. Yeah, I did that for a few years. And I, I distinctly remember another uh, very important moment in my life when I was living in Porter, Maine, and I had to go to work at uh, in Rochester, New Hampshire, which was 53 miles away. Now, if it was snowing outside, that meant I had to get up about 4 o'clock and leave because they really didn't want to hear how far you had to drive or all the excuses that you had to be on the job at 7 o'clock in the morning, ready to go to work. So I remember one morning getting up, and I was 26 years old, and I looked out the window, and it was snowing. And I went in to wash my face, and I could not wash my face because my back was hurting so badly. I was a, a human beast of burden, a construction a carpenter or a laborer. You're still a beast of burden. So um, I made up my, I sat on the edge of the bed that morning, and I said, what can I do? What is it that in this world that I can do? And I said, well, I remember Dave Footer's fish, and I said, I think I, think I would like to be a taxidermist. <laughs> I mean, that's... I know an odd profession, but uh, 
that's what I decided to be. And I bought a little book and I read the book and I put up a sign in those days and, uh, and uh, I became a taxidermist, and uh, that's how I started out and didn't know a thing about it. Did you take was... any community ed classes, or did you go try to mentor with anybody? Or I know you said the book, but... I had a... I, I ran into a fellow at the uh, Skull and Antler Banquet in Gorham, Maine, when Dick Arsenault ran it. And uh, I, his name was Richard Cristoforo, and Richard was far advanced. He'd been a taxidermist already for a dozen years or 15 years, and he was way advanced, really a good taxidermist. And and he took me under his wing and answered any questions I had and, and gave me t- some tutoring. I, I didn't go work under him at his studio or anything, but he was there for me anytime I had a question and steered me in the right direction. And also a gentleman named Forrest Hart from Vanguard, one of the great, taxidermist and also uh he was a bronze sculpture so he he would sculpt these life-size moose and you see some some around in your travels uh if you see something really look it's monumental bronzes it's probably is and uh anyway uh, i took uh, some tutoring from forrest was always very free with his information i worked with him a little bit so i had those two guys uh, two two men that uh, helped me a lot, and not only that, but uh, David Footer. We met a few times, and he never showed me anything, but he set a great example from his work that he turned out and the way the kind of person he was uh, made an impression on me, and, and I got to be friends with David, and we got to know each other quite well. And the last time I saw him was at the uh, in Aquasic at the museum up there, and he heard I was going to be there with a display, and him and his wife drove up there, and he was so nice and so complimentary of my work, and we had been friends a long time and equals for a long time, uh, but it took 18 years for me from the time I started taxidermy in 1976, it took 18 years for me to get David Footer's approval. A nicer man you could never meet. He yeah. was as gentle as they come. Um, I know his daughter, Julie. Has, Julie has done a lot uh, of of work as well, painting in particular, I know. Right. But um, let's talk about what taxidermy is, because when you say I started doing taxidermy, is that a lot different than what you're doing now? What was taxidermy then? Taxidermy then, there was hardly any information about it. Right. That's why I was lucky to have a couple of people I could call up. And I, I made a lot of mistakes when I first started, but I always tried to do the best I could with what I was provided to work with. So some skins are much better than others. Only fish gene, or are we talking? No, I did everything. That's what I did. Yeah. Okay. I, I, was, I did all the taxidermy, and the taxidermy... Is the Latin word is taxi to move the derma, the skin. Oh, right. Yeah. I have a, a big library with about 100 books over there on the shelves, and and I have collected a, a lot of pictures of animals, all, all kinds of animals and fishies. I have lots of, and folders and piles. So when I would, when I'd go to mount something, I would surround myself with pictures of it. And I learned a lot that way and basically how things were supposed to look. But the best thing I did 
when I decided in 1976 to become a taxidermist. And I said, if I'm going to be anything like a good fish taxidermist, I'm going to have to learn art. Mm-hmm. And I started taking art lessons from a, a wonderful lady from Springvale, Maine. And I was 26 years old. I work all day as construction work. And I drive through Springvale and I stop and, and there would be me and six or eight older ladies, you know, because they were all like 50, 60, 70 years old. Sure. And Cal was a, Cal Wilson, uh, she was about, I would guess, around 60. And she she was a little lady and she had lips, red lipstick and dressed up, you know, did her hair up and dressed up in bright colors. And and uh, so I, I took lessons from her for about a year and a half, she taught me, you, you hear this saying that you can see all the colors on a blade of grass, and probably most people think that's bull, but it's not. And she taught me how to see color, and she taught me composition, and she taught me arrangement. And that put me above all other people in the field of taxidermy that had not had any training. Because you can do an excellent job on a taxidermy mount or a fish carving or anything. You can do an excellent job mounting it, but if you display it in a poor setting where where the composition is is not right, then you've destroyed it. Just picture a panel on a wall with a fish on it. What if that fish is too far forward or too far back or too far up or too far down? You've if it is, then you've destroyed it. It has to be in the proper place on that wooden panel. I agree with that. I think it's it, it's interesting either with writing or art or anything. I I can imagine the number of times, Gene, that you walk into this studio after you left it from the day before and you were halfway through the process of working on a fish, painting it, if you will. And the second you walk in and your eyes set on, you had stared at it for six hours the day before. But the second your eyes hit it that next morning, you can see a change you want to make or an improvement that you didn't see before because you were just too close to it for too long. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, the good good thing about most of these things that I work on is, is you f- learn how to make things right. You keep, like especially with fish carvings, it can be erased. Your painting can be erased or part of your painting can be erased and retouched up again, fixed up. So if you, if you put too many spots in one place and, then, and you made a con- congested area you don't like, you can you can go in there with an airbrush and a magic wand, I, I call it. Yeah. And you can go in there and fix it, you know, yeah. and change it. But uh, I think that speaks to what I was trying to say is yeah. that sometimes you, you might make a mistake or get carried away and you have to go back and do it, but uh, redo it. Um, Gene, so we're talking about back in the day, I always think of some of the earliest stuff that Dave was doing and even halfway through his career was pulling skins over, uh, of a dead fish over, over a foam or a block of wood or whatnot. And that's how you started. That's taxidermy. Yes. That's taxidermy. Tell me about the first time you attempted to carve a fish out of a block of wood. Do you remember uh, that? I, I remember doing a couple of very small ones to start with, like uh, 8-inch trout, you know, and I did a couple of small ones. And then I, so I think it was 86, I decided I was going to do 
something elaborate, and I carved a five-pound brook trout uh, swimming over rocks, a three-dimensional three piece, you know. And uh, <clears throat> I took it to the main sportsman show, and back in those days, their art show was unbelievable. They indeed had the, the best in the state. Everybody would emerge on on the main sportsman show, and and they would all the best carvers, all the best painters would emerge, and and there was like uh, two hundred fifty paintings, uh, one hundred seventy five carvings entered in in those in those days, and now it's it's nothing like that. So I entered my uh, my first entry that i'd ever entered in there with with everybody in the whole state and uh that fish got third best of show and best fish so i i was thrilled and uh to do that and i carved the rocks out of wood and and it had a nice bend and it was a you know nice composition and the next year i entered a uh like a six pound brown trout and I won the best of show the next year. So that was setting my, getting my reputation started as a woodcarver. And I was still doing fish taxidermy all the way up until 2000. And then 2000, I stopped doing fish taxidermy and just started carving fish. I think I know why. Tell me why. I would go down every September after at the end of basically after the end of fishing season and i'd have a large chest type freezer full of dead fish and the reason they were dead is that they were going to be mounted and uh i I really thought of this in 1990 i started carving catch and release carvings and i was carving them as fast and as well as i could carve them and in charging uh I don't know, $600 for an average fish carving in those days in 1990. So as time went on, I I got better at it and faster at it. And I just stopped doing it. The, the taxidermy on fish in, in 2000, and I usually do around 20 or 25 carvings a year on average since 1990. Mm-hmm. I think I've carved around 600 fish. But back to getting away from taxidermy. Right. I think you were doing it for conservation reasons as well. You touched on it. Like yes. Maybe catch and release really meant something to you. Yes. Maybe people were coming to you with the same mindset. Um, I would hate to see a trophy fish get killed just to have it mounted and stuffed on a wall. Right. Um, because those big fish aren't really that great to eat. Well, you take... A three or four or five pound brook trout in the state of Maine is a trophy. Yes, and uh, I mean it's a wonderful thing. And this 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 creature has come from an egg uh, to this great living creature. You, if you want a brook trout to eat, which I do all the time, I go catch an eight or ten inch brook trout in a brook somewhere, and I eat all the brook trout I want. They're delicious. Yes, and and I, I would never think of keeping a big brook trout to eat, you know. And, and But people have egos, and they want to show off the dead fish even, you know, to and put it in their freezer and pull it out. Pull it, and, 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 and I understand that. But anyway, and I understand everyone cannot afford my fish because they're not cheap. But you do get a big bang for your dollar. I do work hard, and I don't make a lot of money. And uh, 
but it takes a long time to do one of these fish. Mm-hmm. And I think there's more to it than just the memory. It truly is a piece of art. You know, you go and look at the walls of L.L. Bean or you go into any place that has any gene bar mount and it just draws you in. Uh, Danny has a number of them or a couple of them at least it had them in the main guy fly shop. And there wouldn't be one morning I'd walk by and I wouldn't stop to appreciate. They look so real, Gene. They just are, you're really, you have a rare talent. You have an eye. Um, and again, I can't emphasize it's not taxidermy, it's art. You're a wildlife artist and that's incredible. Um, did you make some mistakes early on? Oh, yeah. Of course, I, years of mistakes. <laughs> Ones that you could correct. Uh, not always, but, yeah. you know, big people, you know, they don't, they don't know a lot about taxidermy and stuff and they look good to them, but it, I might see flaws with it, you know, and it's hard to get perfection. You can try. Even today, I, I've been at this for almost 50 years and even today you can, I can tr- strive for perfection, but very rarely do I achieve it. <laughs> Oh, I think you do. I think you're you're understated. I think you, your work is incredible and so impressive. Well, one thing I wanted to say about my carvings is one thing I like is putting uh, some action, uh, slight, uh, conservative action in my fish. I, like I have a, a head down, tail down, maybe a uh, head, uh, a bow in the body, and, and the fins. I like them hugging the body, and I like to have the mouth slightly open. I want the fish... To be, that I carved to look like it could possibly move forward. And another thing I like is is when I paint the fish, I got this technique that I I make it soft. It's soft looking, like you could go up and press your finger into the body of it, like a real fish. I like that. And I do that with a com- combination of artist brush and airbrush. The airbrush is a magic wand, and it, I can create things with that that I could never do with just using an artist brush. So what is an airbrush for the audience, Gene? I, I know what an airbrush is, but explain to the audience what an airbrush is and what kind of paint you use. The airbrush is a a little tiny uh, air gun that is about as twice as uh, is about as big as a person's index finger. And uh you can get the tiniest little spray with it uh, up to a, maybe a couple of inches spray, but it's for doing fine work. And uh, I use uh, acrylic paint. I used to use a lacquer paint, but uh, it started affecting my health. And so I just learned how to use acrylics, airbrush paints, and I and I also use acrylic paints that you buy at Walmart or anywhere. Yeah, with with art with an artist brush. But I I got my technique and my recipe that I, it's taken many decades to develop. Yeah, this this recipe when I when I go. Start to finish my recipe, I know what I'm getting at the end. I already know before I even start what it's going to look like at the end. And uh, it's been a long, long road to get to to where I am today. Uh, So, yeah, where where you started and where you are, you've turned it into a successful business. You know, you said you're not getting rich doing this, but you were able to make a living. Um, Tell us about the transition. Well... Hanging out your shingle, saying I'm here to do this. Yes. At the first, or, yeah. at first uh, I worked construction and did taxidermy on weekends and things when I could. But uh, somewhere around uh, 
1981 or 82 or somewhere along in there. I moved, I moved to Sebago, but I started getting serious about it. I started getting, having children. Uh, my second, uh, I, I had two, two sons. I have, have a daughter from my first marriage. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then, so I've got two sons, my second marriage and my family was growing. And so I had to get serious about really working. And if you're going to make a living at taxidermy, you better be serious about working. And you cannot go buy a new truck and put a bright, shiny sign on it and expect that you're going to be paying for that truck. It's tough, a tough, tough business. I mean, if you, I'm dealing in hundreds, not thousands, in hundreds. You know, so yeah, you you really got have to come out here every morning at eight o'clock, and you got to work to six o'clock just about every day, six or seven days a week, yeah, to to get by and, and make a living at it. Yeah, and what what I'm looking at behind Gene is a long list, and I mean eight and a half by eleven sheets of paper glued together of of potential work you have in the future. So you have a backlog of work ahead of you. Yeah, usually usually it's more like. Ten or fifteen pieces ahead of me. Isn't that great? These are pieces. Of, these are a list that most of them have been done on. Yeah. So people come to you. People come to you after they've caught a trophy fish. Maybe photos, dimensions, yeah. a story. Tell me about how someone engages Gene Bar. Well, a lot of my customers are from from away. Ah, from Canada and from. Uh, I, I just did work for people in Michigan, New Mexico, Texas. Wyoming. So I get calls from all over the place, and they're not going to come here and meet me. And I get calls from up down the coast. It could be Connecticut or Maryland or Massachusetts. But a lot of if they, if they live here in a mount around Maine, like in New England, they can come see me if they want to. But a lot of the conversation would be uh, a man would call me from saying. New Mexico, and he he might not even call me. He may email me. I may never see him. Right, and he wants to commission uh, a twenty four inch uh, rainbow trout. So I I said, well, uh, this is what I need from you. Uh, this is first you you've got to establish a price, and I give him the price, and if he agrees to it, then I say I need a third down for a deposit. Yeah. And and send me. A, I'll be waiting for your check, and because once they send me a check, I am working for them. Then otherwise, it doesn't mean nothing to me until I get the check. It's all talk. So once I get my deposit and a picture, I don't want to be inundated with pictures. But he can even email those to me, and I can print off. Just send me one or two good pictures and what you want the color to look like, yeah. or if if the Sometimes they fade, so you give me instructions. You want more of this or more of that? You know, tell me what you want, and uh, and then once I get the deposit, I will. Uh, I have got hundreds and hundreds of drawings of fish that were dead when they brought them in, and I drew them. I drew those fish and I measured them, so you can you got a pretty good idea. I mean, if a guy's got a twenty-four inch rainbow, I get my rainbow templates out and go through and find some 23, 24, 25 inch ones. And I look them over and I say, oh, geez, this one looked 
really like his his fish. Yeah, but it, it might be an inch shorter. But you can you can you can expand that. You know, yes, that with experience you can expand that drawing to to fit his. And once you get a drawing that I like the looks of, I send him the drawing, and I have one for myself. And he can keep keep the drawing, but he looks at it and he sends me the approval, or if he wants any changes made, and and that's about it. And then it usually takes eight to eight to twelve, fourteen months, and I give them a contract. I, I'll draw a contract out with their name on it, address, phone number, and an estimated time when I'm going to have it done, and what they want done, and the cost of it, and what they sent me for a deposit, their check number, and the date. Sure. And yeah. all that is sent to them. And I have a copy here of, of that same contract. Yeah. Because it's a duplicate copy. So good, better, best. You said you try to establish a price for the work you're going to do. You have different tiers of work that you do. You do, I notice you have what you call 3D. Right. Tell me about the different, when, when you approach, they, they come to you with a fish, and then your next thing is, well, here are some ideas I have. Right. Tell me about that. The sky is the limit. Right. Whatever you can dream up, I can do. But this is depending on if your wallet has a limit. <laughs> because <laughs> you have your standard, say, 24-inch brook trout that I do a lot of those from from the Canada mm -hmm. and from Maine. Not too many from Maine, but I do a lot of 20 to 24-inch brook trout, 26-inch brook trout. So <clears throat> the the standard fish is, is just, just – I got kind of a rule of thumb how I charge, you know. But if, if a guy's got a 24-inch brook trout and he says he wants it 3-D, well, all of a sudden you're, you're starting to talk some serious – to me, it's pretty serious money. That's because you it's know, three, both two eyes. You can see you, both you sides. You've got to do it 3-D so you can walk around it, and you've got to have a base for it, and you've got to carve rocks for it, and you've got to put it on a display that when you walk around that, that 3-D, it, it's supposed to look good to excellent from all angles. Yes. You know, so you – you increase the price drastically, right? And uh, that's the premium package. Yeah, yeah. So, so to give you a jest, you know, a, a, a twenty-four inch brook trout would run about two thousand uh, dollars for for a wall mount. For a wall mount, not and then. Then you want one for a, a three day would run you about four thousand for the trout and about five hundred for the base and the wooden rocks and the habitat. Yeah. So that that's a jest, <clears throat> and I would require third third down, and the rest when the job's completed. Sure, and uh, that's basically how I've always operated, and that, uh, since I started. So, Gene, you know, we live in a world of old men and fish. You ever have someone die on you before you finish their fish? <laughs> I'm trying to think, you know. Or have you been lucky enough to get it across the finish line before that happened? Well, I can't remember ever not getting paid. There you go. You know, I, I, I guess if somebody did die, their, their wife or their son or somebody came and paid for it. But I can't remember an instant when, when that happened. I think it's an honest question. Well, Gene, I think it's time for us to take a quick break and come back and learn more about your carving work. Okay, sounds good. During one of my recent visits with Gene, I was able to capture a live recording of Gene performing a song he wrote about growing up in Alabama. 
In lieu of historical flyline flashback, I want to share this wonderful and touching piece with the audience to enjoy as well. It's an old guitar. It's a Gibson, and I bought it in 1966, but it was made in 1963. And I've had it all these years. It's been a great friend. This is a song I wrote called When I Was Just a Boy. When I was just a boy, living way down south, I remember evening sitting on the porch, the sun going down over the Blue Ridge Hills, listening to the sounds of the crickets and the whooper wills. When I was just a boy, living way down south, I remember evening sitting on the porch. Family gathered round, talking soft and low, listening to the sounds of the crickets and the whooper wills. Mama would turn to me with a smile on her face and say, Son, would you bring your guitar out and play the wildwood flowers? Play it soft and sweet, you know you play it like nobody else can do. Oh, play the wildwood flower, play the wildwood flower, play the wildwood flower just for me. Oh, play the wildwood flower, play the wildwood flower, play the wildwood flower just for me. And now let's return to the second part of our show. Gene, I know that wood carvers rely on different species of wood. What do you use for your carvings uh, you know, that you can get handily here in Maine? I prefer basswood, and uh, it's commonly used by most carvers to carve fish and uh, waterfowl decoys. So it's uh, indigenous to southern Maine. I don't know where its limits are, but it grows around the old fields and farmlands and things like that. 
and it has the biggest leaf in the woods. The leaves, the leaves are as big as a man's head, and they're kind of heart shaped. And uh, what I like about basswood is plentiful, and uh, it doesn't have any resin in it. Like white pine has resin in it. Well, you don't have to contend with that with basswood, and um, that's why I like basswood. No knots. It's got knots in it, and you you try to avoid those, you know, by using the part of the wood that doesn't. And what I usually do is I have it cut up into slabs, like uh, an inch and a half, uh, two inches thick, and then I'll glue it with a carpenter's glue to thickness that accommodates the size of the fish that I'm carving and the uh, bend in the fish, like looking at it from the top. Uh, they usually have a head out, tail out, or head in, tail out, or some some bend in them. And so uh, if you're putting a stream bend in, like a leaping salmon, you would want a pretty good thick piece of wood. And then I cut the, the wood out that I don't want uh, with a bandsaw and a draw knife is a, a knife with two handles on it. And... Uh, and any power tools that I can use to get the wood away and, and find the fish that's inside that block and, and bring it out uh, to something that looks uh, real and lifelike. So you look at a, a block of wood that you've laminated and you try to see a fish living inside of it, and it's well, your job to bring it out. I know if I use my recipe and my technique I'll, that and, and my templates that I have drawn out, that I can make that block of wood into a lifelike sculpture. So you take a, a, a resource that's local and available to you. Do you kiln dry it at all, Gene? Or no, I, I just I just put it in my cellar, and I have a. If you put a dehumidifier in your cellar, you can make it a useful space. Otherwise, it's just it gets too wet. So, so in that process, you're actually removing the moisture without using. Exactly. In a traditional sense. Yeah, and and uh, if, you, if you just left it outside, uh, it takes a year for an inch of wood to dry, so it would take a couple of years to, for an inch and a half, two-inch board to dry out if it was stick-dried outside. but uh, And I do stick-dry it outside, but I bring it in the shop, in the cellar of the shop, which is real dry, and uh, for several months before I actually use it mm-hmm. to carve a fish. And the fins? The fins are also carved with thin slices of basswood. Yeah. And with a bandsaw, I can I can cut thin pieces or mm-hmm. any size piece I want. Um, I can see you have a Fordham tool here. Yes. Uh, I'm sure you do some burning. Yes. And so you have to well just take your take yourself through carving the fish. You 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 got a block of wood. You're gonna dimension. You're gonna bucket down to this. You must do a profile on the outside of the block of wood to give you a sense of the measurement and then start taking away from there. Well, a lot of the, a lot of the carvings, the bigger ones, I, I actually, once I've roughed the fish out, I will split them down the center with a bandsaw and I'll hollow them out. Oh, wow. And that lightens them up tremendously, like approximately 50% of the weight I can take out of it. And uh, if it's a Atlantic salmon, I do those about uh, 60%. In other words, I, I take a, a board that's big enough to accommodate the, the thickness of the fish looking at it from the top, and I'll make it maybe 60% thick, 
so as I can get the ventral fins down by the belly, I can get those ventral fins in comfortably instead of just trying to make it a high size. And uh, and also a hollow out the back with a, with a little uh, circular chainsaw. And uh, I, I remove a lot of wood and a lot of weight. Even so, uh, you've hollowed it out. That's still quite a lot of weight to be moving around with one hand. That's my technique. I have them on a post so I can move them from one vise to hang them on the wall. And you're always moving these fish around. They don't just stay in one place yep. because you have all these steps that you're doing. And, uh, you know, from, from roughing it out to fine-tuning it to using a palm sander and, and sanding the body down and getting it really smooth. And, and uh, it's, it's kind of like building a house because once you get it roughed out, you say, wow, look at him go, look at him go. But then when it comes to the finish work, it comes to a standstill and it slows right down. The devil's in the details. Yes, yes. And it takes a lot of time to do the details. And, and you can just keep working things basically until you get them right. And uh, with paintings, the same thing. I I, I kind of sculpt with painting. I, I look, I imagine the in-depth of the fish, the colors that's most into the fish, and I go in there and I put them down first, and I keep adding colors and adding colors till I bring out the, the, the exterior color of the fish. And the subtleties at the very end of it with that airbrush, it just softens things up. And brings them to life, you know. Your fish look really alive to me for one other reason is I love the lacquer that you use. It makes them look wet. Well, it's exciting when you when you get a fish painted, let's, let's say you got a nice brook trout, 20-inch brook trout, and you've got it all painted. Uh, and I scrape the eye off because there's a glass eye in there, so I scrape the paint off the eye, <clears throat> and I put six coats of lacquer over it. And it it really comes to life. I mean, just in a few minutes, yeah. you know, and it's so gratifying. It's, it's a God-given talent, that, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm not just saying that. Mm-hmm. I believe God gave me a gift, a special ability that is something extraordinary to me that I, that I, that I have this gift, and I'm awed by it when I finish a fish. I look at the fish. And I can't believe I did it. I mean, it's hard to believe. And it's the scary part. Someday I'm going to come in here and not remember how to do it. You know, I'm going to keep saying this, Gene. You, you're an artist uh, first. And there must come to a point in the day where you just have to say, I need to stop. Well, when you're doing a big salmon, let's say you've got a 48-inch Atlantic salmon that you're working on. Well... Every one of them scales is carved in individually, and every one of them is painted several times because you can't do it one or two times. It's a sculpture, like I was talking about, and you have to keep going over and over and over it with the artist brush on each scale over and over, and there's thousands of scales on one. So you can get pretty monotonous after a while, so a lot of times I'll work like a couple of hours making scale, uh, carving them or or or, um, or painting scales. But but I'll turn the radio on, get some good music on, relax, enjoy it, and I'll get up, go take a, a coffee break, 
have a some snack or something, and then come back work for another hour or so, and maybe I'll just completely turn my attention to another project. Yeah, so I can see behind Eugene, you've got one, two, three fish going right now. So these three are all look like they're about in the same step of the process. They've now been painted. Uh, the woodwork and the carving has been completed. And so you'll do sometimes multiple fish at a time just so you can be more efficient with your time resources and also you know, you don't have to let the, you don't have to clean your airbrush every time because you're going to do it with for three fish all at once. Exactly. Uh, Did I you try to work in three and fours? You know, you do just depending on how si- the size of the fish. Yeah. And that, like if you've got a three dimensional fish going, yeah. you might as well count that as two fish. So you, you would only want to do two di- three dimensional fish at once. And, uh, but if it's, it's, if it's just, uh, a catch and release, Fishies that are going on uh, wooden panels, you know, I might do four at a time, but it, it, it's it's feasible. You know, you you you're trying to when you're in a fin making mode, you might do all those fins, cut all those fins out at once, make all those fins at once, and shape all those bodies at once. Yeah, and you, but but with four, three or four, I can I can remember whose fish I'm working on and what, what the what I'm trying to achieve with that that particular fish but if you get going with too many of them it can can get confusion and yeah no you you and i talked earlier about uh no one's going to get rich being a wildlife artist and you have to be disciplined yes you talked to me a little bit about your work schedule uh you get up in the morning take me from there well used to my work schedule was eight o'clock in the morning to six o'clock at night most most days, back when I was in my heyday of doing taxidermy, and, and I would do fifteen or twenty carvings a year, and eighty or hundred taxidermy pieces a year. Back in my heyday, I was one person doing this, and, and, and a tremendous amount of work, hard work. So now I'm semi-retired, and my main objective in life is at this point in my life is to be happy. And I might not get out here till ten o'clock in the morning. I'll get up in the morning and and have breakfast and uh, take the dog for a walk and play my guitar for thirty minutes and then come out and go to work and work till five o'clock or six o'clock and go in for the evening, you know, or not work at all. I might just go fishing or or hunting that day, you know. So it, it's pretty nice at, at this at my age, you know. I, I'm. I wish I wasn't old, but at least I'm free. You look great. I can I can get uh, I can I can get out and still get around. I'm pretty pretty agile for my age. Yeah. So this year, Gene bird hunted, moose hunted, yeah. and deer hunted. Yes. And put in a lot of time on his feet. Yeah. And you like doing that. And before before we did that, my friend Bill Fisher and I. Built a built a camp up in Nori this year. Oh, he did. Yeah. So the two two of us built that camp, and and that was a lot of work and a lot of a lot of fun, a lot of hard work too. Were you telling me that's on the Androscoggin? Yeah. Yeah. It's near the Androscoggin yeah. River. Yeah. You mentioned that Nori, one of our previous meetings. Um, Gene, you showed me the last time we visited. You used a horseshoe. Yeah. To help mount, was it a bird? 
Yes, I have. Uh, yeah. How, what's your inspiration for some of your, so a three-dimensional piece of work that you're doing may have a base like you talked about earlier. Um, you've had some pretty intricate ideas come through your brain um, and across, you know, through your work and your finished product. Tell me about some of the inspirational um, things that you've taken away that you've seen. Some ideas. You- well, this particular piece is a house wren that I'm working on. It's a tiny little bird that's very quiet and very very shy little bird. You don't see them a lot, but they they are one of the most beautiful little creatures. But I, I carved this little wren out of tupelo, and a tupelo comes from down south in the swamps. And it, it's really the best wood that I know of for getting fine detail, like feather detail, you know. And so I carved the the bird out of it. I got excited about the bird. And uh, a lot of times bird carvers will just have a little round base and they'll, and they'll put a piece of driftwood on the base and they'll put the bird on the driftwood. Well, I don't want to do that. I, I I really love what I've done so far with the house wren, and I was trying to think of a good composition uh, and display for this small bird. And I was at my water faucet, outside water faucet, and I noticed some horseshoes that were laying there. Yeah. And I picked the biggest one. It was off one of those big drought horses. And I said, now, wouldn't that be nice to have that horseshoe coming out of some dark farm dirt with some rusty colored leaves and and you got that little rusty colored house wren attached to the horseshoe that I will also carve out of wood and it will look old and rusty on this a beautiful hardwood base with with this, this setting and and I said this this is what you call a kicker and it's something that you can do it with fish carvings or anything but you can make somebody want it they wouldn't ordinarily when they come in the studio and to my gallery, and look around, they had no intentions of buying anything when they come in. But they see something that so nice and so beautiful that they want it. They want to own it and take it home. I, I want to take that piece you have in your studio. For the audience, Gene, we're sitting in Gene's workshop, but he has a beautiful studio uh, on the front of the, of the building. And I want you to think giant brook trout, beautiful finished product. But I love the one you have. Of are they little six-inch stream brookies? There's two of them. <clears throat> yeah, I've, I've carved uh, quite a few of those, uh, generally around seven or nine-inch trout and, and or, or foot long. But those are my favorite because that's what I usually catch. And yeah. and uh, my wife Donna and I live an unusual lifestyle because we have a big garden. And we live a lot out of the garden, and we, I, I will go fishing and bring home my limited brook trout, and we'll sit down, have garden vegetables and and uh, salad out of the garden, and eat those brook trout, and just being in heaven on earth, you know. And then uh, it is king's food. It's food that no matter how much money you got, you cannot buy brook trout, no, and a wild brook trout. So uh, when I do harvest the deer, which is generally uh, get one every year most of the time but anyway my point is is that when we get one it's a celebration it, it's a it's a, a thanksgiving and we'll process that deer ourselves and 
and enjoy eating the deer uh, over the next year and and talk about how good it is and how, how what great food that is, pure food that you got yourself. The most honest way to get food is that you can get it is to, to get it yourself, to harvest it yourself off the land. Now, and there's, you know, Gene and I live in the same area. I live in Naples, and here we are in Sebago. You could almost hunt with a baseball bat around here. There's so many deer now. There's more deer now than there was when I was a kid. I think it's just because of all the development. They can live right in your backyard, and you can't shoot a rifle within 400 feet of a home. So that does that. We talked a little bit about Dave Footer before. Um, for the audience, Dave Footer was really kind of a predecessor to, to Gene Barr, I would say. Right? He was doing it before you were. Um, he, if you go into any place in New England and you see a gorgeous brook trout mounted or carved, there's going to be a 50-50 chance it's either you or Dave. Do you remember the first time you met Dave Footer? Uh, I think he came to my studio in Porter, Maine, about 1978 or nine. He was just come in kind of looking around. He was over that way, and I guess he'd heard about me or something, but... Anyway, he kind of stopped in, and, and I knew who he, he was. He was like God to me. Uh, he was friendly and everything, and uh, but he he didn't uh, he didn't volunteer any information, you know. <laughs> Do you feel like he viewed you as a competitor? Probably not at first, you know. Yeah, and uh, as time went on, of course, it got better. Yeah, it got better. And, and then, as, uh, it, like I said earlier, it, it took 18 years for him to um, consider me an equal. An equal, an equal. Yeah, like, yeah. like he, he said, he was looking at, actually, at Danny Legere's lake trout. Danny had a, a, the lake trout in, uh, in a booth at the Maine Sportsman Show. Uh, and, he, and he came and he stood and looked at that lake trout for a long time. Danny was telling me his story. And he says, uh, after he said, Gene finally got it. And this was 18 years after I started. This is Dave Footer talking. Yes, yeah, so Gene, Gene finally got it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I felt, I felt really good. Well, I, I'm imagine wildlife art is like anything: playing guitar or even just painting or photography. The more you do it, the more consistently you do it, the better you get at it, and the results are just amazing. And you live with an artist, Donna. Donna, oh my she, her goodness, her work is incredible. She's the light of my life. Tell me about Donna. Yeah, she she uh, has been an art teacher for decades, and she taught in in Bridgeton at the uh, Adult Learning Center, and she teaches at the Naples Library now. And uh, <clears throat> she's always got classes going on, but she has taught a lot of people. She has opened the door to color. To a lot of people in this in this area around here, and uh, she's one of my critics. Uh, she comes in and she—it's funny if I'm doing something and she she finds fault with it. Then you know she tactfully tells me, and I do the same thing for her. Yeah, but uh, but well, she she's my, the love of my life. She's beautiful. I tell her she's beautiful. I tell her I love her every day. Yeah, yeah, she is beautiful. I'm sure you love her. She seems very lovable. She's a hugger. I'm a hugger. <laughs> yeah. And kind. Uh, I mean, it doesn't take long. I've only met Donna a couple times now, and she's just, 
as sweet as the day is long. How did you meet her? How were you introduced to Dawn? Well, I met her many, many years ago. Uh, my boys were homeschooled, and and she homeschooled her her son also. Mm-hmm. So they all became friends. And uh, I hadn't seen Donna Don in years and years, and I'd gotten divorced. And uh, so I went, I joined the uh, Bridge and Chamber of Commerce, and one May day, in the end of May, by May 23rd, I believe it was, I went on the uh, Songo River Queen because they were having the monthly after-hours meeting. And and I ran right smack into her there, and that was it. Yeah. Parks flew. It was unbelievable. It's like songs are written about, poetry is written about. That's it's true. Sparks really did fly. I, I can see that the the spark between you both. You you clearly love each other deeply, and um, I should all have that kind of love in our life. Uh, you talked about music. I know from speaking with some other people that know you that you're quite accomplished with the guitar. Well. Tell me about your background with playing, and you play out a little bit, too. Yeah, once in a while. I, I started when I was uh, probably 13 or 14, and started playing music with my uncles. And they took took me some time to show me how to pick a couple of songs, and I'm not a real good guitar player. I can't do a lot of picking, but I, I can strum the chords. And uh, I can remember the words to a lot of songs. I don't know. It's and I and I can play the harmonica with the guitar and sing a song at the same time. That's fantastic. And uh, I also write songs, but I don't expect I'll ever uh, be a millionaire at that either. <laughs> Make any money to speak of, but I have played out a few times and have have. I've played for money a couple of times. But it's a passion you have. It's a passion I have and I enjoy doing it and <clears throat> Can I now, take a can I take a guess, Gene? Americana. Uh, yeah, country, western Americana. Yeah. Old, old rock, you know. Yeah. Stuff like that. Seems like it would fit right that fit right into your gun barrel. Yes. Who are some of your inspirations in terms of artists? Oh, Johnny Cash, of course, you know, and oh. Glenn Campbell, I liked a lot, and Merle Haggard shows those are some great guys. You know, how can you not like that? Some of the best, George Jones, mm-hmm. yeah, Bob Dylan. So you, Gene, you didn't really apprentice underneath anybody. Has anyone ever come to you and recognized you as a wildlife artist and said, "I want to"? learn how to do this, would you be willing to show me the early steps of how to do it? Has anyone ever approached you? Yes, I've had a couple of students uh, in the taxidermy practice. I had a couple I took in, and uh, they didn't last long. No. They usually don't last long. No, they 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 have good intentions, but they it was kind of a disappointment. So I, I – and so when people want to – uh, learn it, and they come to me to learn taxidermy or to learn anything, carving or anything. I just tell them, "Here's a book. Here's the where you want. Here's the where your sources are. Go get the information." And there's some schools out there that teach it. And and uh, and I said, "If you taxidermy a piece, 
and you want to bring it over, I'll be glad to look at it and critique it for you and help you improve. And, and uh, But nobody's ever done that. But I believe in speaking with Will Lund that you serve as a judge for yes. the main sportsman show, or you have in the past. I do. Do I have that right? Currently, I usually do it. <laughs> so you don't know who the artist is. You just see the piece. Uh, sometimes you know who the artist is because if they keep entering into the competition and you meet them and, and they ask you maybe a question or something, some questions, uh, then you after a while you get to know them and you get to know their work. So you you can at times tell who's it, whose work is whose. Yeah. You know, and you, you you try to be, uh, you know, biased and everything, but it's not always uh, possible after you get to know a person's certain uh, mark of, of their work. You know, it's like you, you could, uh, like we were talking about David Footer, you could walk into a room and you could see his work across the room at 100 feet and say, oh, that's David Footer. That's right. work there, you know. Uh, my friend Steve Barry just inherited a Dave Footer medal from a friend who had passed, and it has just incredible value to him in many ways. Sure. Like it had, like the first fish you saw from Dave had right a value of impression. It impressed you when just to see it. Um, Gene, what do you want your legacy to be? Well, I've carved around six hundred fish, good fish. Nice ones. They look good. I don't know of anybody else in the world that's carved 600 nice fish. And I guess I want to be one of the greatest fish carvers, one of the greats. I, I think you are one of the greats. And I also think that you carry a unique card, too, in that I think you were really working on the cusp of when we were going from killing fish to being able to replicate their beauty without having to kill them. Right, and you maybe were maybe one of two people that were successful at actually doing it because to use the skin of a fish, you've already got a template right there. You had to recreate it from wood, right, from nothing, mm -hmm. and that truly was perfect timing. Donna, come right in. Yeah, we were expecting you for the audience. This is Donna. Gene <laughs> told me a little bit about. How he met you on the Songo Queen one night, and you guys reunited after <laughs> knowing yeah. your children had been homeschooled together. Yeah. Um. He he shared some things that I'm not going to repeat. They were all good. Okay. Tell me who he is. Tell me who Gene Barr is to you, Donna. Well, he's my best friend. He's the love of my life. He's a pretty neat guy. If he can handle me <laughs> and have the patience he has with me, yeah, he's the one. Yeah. Yeah. He seems like he has pretty strong conviction. Is he an easy guy to be around? Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. No one will shoot things straighter to you than Gene. You can always trust his honesty. One of his best friends calls him his true north. Got England? Yeah. That's yeah. wonderful. Um, I don't think any conversation about Gene Barr, especially a contemporary conversation with Gene Barr, can't be more complete without your artwork is incredible, Donna. I mean, I've just had oh. a couple of glimpses of it. Uh, I'm going to have some photos that are going to be on our um, uh, the blog page of our website regarding this, and I hope that the audience takes the opportunity to look at those. And some of them are, are great pieces that you've done. Uh, oh, I love the portrait of, of uh, Gene Matilli. 
Oh, yes. And you showed me some pieces earlier of English setters. A little snow just fell off the roof. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we did. Tell me about your, your own work with art. I know Jean mentioned that you've done some teaching. Oh, yes. A lot over the years. I started teaching on little kids. And then grown-ups wanted to take my classes. And, and then they hired me at the Learning Center, and I was there for almost 14 years. In Bridgeton? Um, yep. Casco and Bridgeton, we had two, two learning centers. And adult ed, I'm still, I'm just now getting back into that again. Yeah. Yeah, I had to take a break. Yeah. yeah. So two artists came together in Sebago, Maine, and live under the same roof and get to inspire each other every day. Yep. Yeah. Does he ever uh, critique your work at all? Not anymore. No. Doesn't. <laughs> Probably there's no room for it, is there, Jean? <laughs> no, she does a beautiful job. Yeah. Yeah. He, he asked me one morning, he said, uh, can I tell you something about that painting and some owls that I had painted? I turned around and I said, no. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you what you were going to say. What is no, no, he was that? absolutely right. Hey, guys, I'm curious. Um, the white birch you use, Gene, for mounting your um, your fish on, not always, but sometimes, Yeah, that, that must be a hard thing to find. Well, you get an eye for it. So I can spot a, a white birch through the woods a long ways. Yeah, and what what, it, what I'm looking for is dead white birch laying down horizontal. Okay, that's what I use. Huh. So I'll I'll go out with my chainsaw, and Donna comes and helps me. We we'll get a sled. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I got to tell you this story. We were down by the old railroad tracks, and so I I would go across, and I'm going up to over the rocks and and everything, and I'm heading toward a white birch out there that I'd spotted, and. Donna walks down the road, and she's gonna she's gonna intersect with me. But she there's some water there, and she's gonna get across the water. So I said that water's too. I knew the water was over her boots, and she took a step in that water and went oh right forward. I didn't know she was gonna step in. I would have stopped her, but she stepped in that water and went right forward <laughs> and got wet. And and uh, I tried not to laugh. But I, did, I still laughed. But she, well, I saw she was okay. <laughs> yeah. Was this wintertime or? No, spring, early spring. Cold you know? then. It was, oh, it yeah. was cold. Yeah. yeah. Was that the end of the uh, birch harvesting uh, quest? Or No, we got our oh, bark. No, we, 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 we went in and got our bark, and it was not, wasn't that cold. Yeah. And, uh, but, but what you do is you go in, and, and like a lot of times you're surprised to, you know, when you're charging three or $400 for a birch panel, mm -hmm. handmade panel. Mm -hmm. It better be. It better be nice. It better look good. You can't just use any piece of bark. So I go in, and you take a, a big birch that looks looks really good, and there may not be one piece on there fit to use. So you keep. You might go to another piece and say, "Oh, look, what a find! We we've got yeah. five pieces on this tree here. This old dead tree that's fallen down. We got five panels on here that we can cut. So we'll we'll cut them." With a chainsaw, we'll cut them. the The width basically is what you're cutting, uh, and you you cut along, and then you you roll the log over, and you cut down the dark side of the white birch, and that way you've got dark on the left and dark on the right of your panel, and light in the middle where your fish is going. So uh, then we bring them back here and glue them to a piece of uh, wood, and and wrap them with. Uh, raffia and uh, 
Chair Canning, do you need to steam them at all? It looks like maybe you, oh no, I see. You drill holes. You're going to use rattan or something like that? Yeah. Raffia. It's a grass that you can buy at the hobby stores. And caning. No kidding. Yeah. That's fantastic. That's beautiful. So you don't have to steam it then. It just rolls out flat for you. Well, when I bring it home, it's still flexible. Yeah. So I take an, and I lay it down flat and I'll put weight on it. And it dries that way. Dries flat. Yeah. Amazing. And then you, you glue it to a piece of plywood and you glue the birch bark and you glue the plywood and you really adhere those two pieces together sure. with pressure. Yeah. And uh, and then the next day you've got yourself a, a, the beginning of a birch bark panel. I appreciate you sharing that because I don't think that that's really, I mean, it is unique to your style. I've seen other carvers do something like that, but I could see you. Anyone who's an artist wanting to incorporate using white birch because it's such a beautiful texture. Well, I'll tell you what happened was way back in the early 1900s, Herbie Welch was the one that influenced David Footer. So you can see a lot of Herbie Welch's work at the Quasic Museum. He in his day and time, he did. He was the man. He he did he tied flies he mounted fish he guided he he did it all and he, he even guided President Eisenhower he made hooks yeah. he used to cast hooks yeah yeah it's amazing so he started out doing this birch bark panels on a lot of his fish yeah with quintessential name brook trout salmon birch bark panel that's it so. Uh, then David Footer come along. He continued to do that. So then it took me a while to figure out how to do that, how to get these panels, how to make them. They just it's, you, you're not going to just go out in the woods and get a piece of birch bark and make one of these anytime soon. And it's going to take a while to learn how to do them. Some tribal knowledge, really. Yeah. yeah. And th- th- what I'm what I'm doing and what I do with these birch bark panels and these fish that I'm carving with the brook trout and the salmon, is I create quintessential main artwork, sporting art, main sporting art. That's what I do. Like if you catch a fish in Wyoming, and it's still going to be a beautiful fish in Wyoming, but it's not going to be a main sporting art. (laughs) Okay. It's going to be Wyoming fish. Yeah. You know, we don't have brown trout in Maine that look like the ones I got in Wyoming. No, they don't. So would you put a brown trout from Wyoming on a main birch bark? If they really wanted to, I would, but I would, you know, it would probably, I don't even, I don't even know if they have birch trees in no. Wyoming. Absolutely. So it, it, yeah. I would do it if a customer requested it. Yeah. yeah. But it, it's still not the same as a main brook trout or salmon on birch bark. You've got, it's all about Maine, or you could include New Hampshire and, and yeah. maybe Vermont. But yeah, uh, just because we're talking about it, Gene, I'm fascinated. Uh, your birch bark for the audience, he's showing the white part of the birch that's coming out. You can flip birch around and it'll be like this most impressive color of beige. Right. Have yeah. you ever? I've never done that. Yeah. And I know they make fishing creels like that. Yes. Also. Yeah. But I always use the white part. Okay, so let's make a deal. I'm going to go to Labrador with Tom Ackerman this springtime. Yeah. If I get a brook trout five pounds or larger, yeah, let's try it. We can do that. All right. And I also have some pink birch. You that, do? That I, I, I found some pink birch, and I'm waiting for 
On occasion, I use that. And uh, well, I'm comfortable with my masculinity. I think I can, I can handle that. <laughs> Good. Anyway, we have options, and, and but I'll be glad to do that for you. That will be a first timer for me. Um, Gene, you are going to go down as being one of the greatest wildlife artists uh, that's ever contributed to the sporting community, and have certainly earned um, the title of being a legend and a luminary in the Maine fishing community as a result of the iconic work that you've done. It's everywhere. It's in everyone's office and home, doctors' offices. LL Bean, anywhere you go, you see it everywhere. And 600 fish, I can't surprise there's not more, but in some ways, how could there be more? It takes so much to build one. Angus King has one of his fish hanging in the office in Washington, D.C. What is it? Uh, there's a brook trout and the salmon doing a double strike on a, they're both chasing the same fly on a handmade birch bark panel. Beautiful. Yeah. Did he commission it or did? No, I, they, they wanted it as a loan. So I loaned it to him to, okay. to display main art in his office. That's perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like that. Well, it means everything that you took the time to speak to me today, Gene and, and Donna. Thank you for joining in at the okay. conversation at the tail end. Um, well, Mike, I appreciate you coming in. I appreciate the nice comments and it's been a pleasure having you here in my studio and welcome back. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion. And thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. A new Flyline Podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays. So be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones. And we invite you to visit the blog section of our website to enjoy photos and contributions from our guests and experience all of our episodes at flylinepodcast.com.